1 Samuel 14, 23 through 45. <clears throat> so the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Avon. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take the spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Draw near here, all of you chiefs of the people, and investigate to see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed taste a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me, and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. This is the word of the Lord. 
you know, how do you explain when a person does a great deal of Christian activity and yet every time he does this Christian activity, it seems like it's unbecoming of God? How do you explain when a man reads his Bible beside his bed at night, he prays and he goes to church, and yet he's unable to get along with his family? He's unable to get along with people at work. He's unable to get along with people at church. How do you explain that? One side of the equation looks really good. The other side of the equation doesn't seem so good. We have a person talking about the will of God, but never ever gets around to doing the will of God himself. We have a man we're going to look at here this morning or this evening who is scolding others for their sin, but doesn't seem to be so severe in scolding him, his, himself for his own sin. What explains this activity that's not backed up by heart action? This ans- is answered as we study King Saul. As we look at Saul, we're going to see a man who's passionate about the forms of religion, but he's not so passionate about the God of the religion or the God that is being served as we move and look at Saul, he attaches himself, himself to the forms, to the activities, but he doesn't attach his heart to God. His heart remains strangely cold to God. Every time he does something, it seems unbecoming. He serves and makes errors. He serves and he blunders badly. In fact, as you just heard me read, what does he do at the end? He's ready to put his own son to death and say it's in the name of the Lord. What explains formal or formal religion or external activity that doesn't have the heart for the God that that formal activity seems to say he serves? Well, first, it's this. Formal religion does not grasp sin. Formal religion does not grasp sin. Saul is filled with forms. And side by side with all the forms that are being done by Saul, side by side we find willfulness, we find stubbornness, and we find a heart that does not grasp his own sin. In 1 Samuel 13, we all know this. Let's rehearse it for a second. We know that he disobeyed God's word. God told him to wait seven days for Samuel to show up and they would offer the sacrifice and then he would be told by Samuel, the word of the Lord, to go into battle against the Philistines. And so seven days have come. All the Philistines are becoming great and massive numbers are out there. All the Israelites are running to the hills and hiding in holes and he looks really, really, uh, he's very upset about this. And so he, he says, I have to take it into my own hands and offer this sacrifice myself. And immediately after he does this, isn't this, isn't this what happens sometimes? You know, we go out and we do the wrong thing, and immediately we're, we're oh, you know, somebody comes up and says, what have you done? And that's exactly what Samuel says to him. He says, you have acted foolishly, and Saul begins to make excuses. And Saul, I mean, Samuel tells him that God is going to take the kingdom away from you. He's going to seek another man and give it to him. He's going to give it to a man after his own heart. So the word of the prophet cuts Saul to the quick. I want you to imagine, you know, you know, we all know what it means to have a toenail torn out or a fingernail torn out. Maybe you don't. I do. Kind of hurts pretty bad. Can't hardly walk. Just go break your little toe and you'll find out what I'm talking about. I mean, this guy's got a broken small toe. 
And he's going to do everything he can. Surely if I go and attach myself to every form of religion, God won't take the kingdom away from me. This is what he's thinking. He'll get himself so attached, he'll give God every bit of his attention. But there's one thing that he misses, and it's this. He doesn't grasp that he needs to repent of his sin. He doesn't say when, uh, this, when Samuel says, what have you done? He doesn't say, I have acted foolishly. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I have broken the commandments of God. He never really grasped the weight of his sin. He doesn't understand what it means. He's only concerned with the consequences of his sin. He's only concerned that he's going to lose the kingdom and he doesn't want to lose it. So he's going to re- try to repair the breach between himself and God by doing things. By doing things. Now let me give you a list of things that he's done. I made a list. I have a list of eight things that he has done. Following this sin, he separates himself from Samuel and he attaches himself to a priest named Ahijah. And remember last week we said Ahijah is related to Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. And God has judged Eli and his family and they are going to be terminated. But he's attached himself to a priest. And guess what he asked this priest to do after Jonathan, the armor bearer, have that first victory where they kill those guys, the 20 guys in the last passage we studied? He says, let's go to the Lord and pray. So he's got a priest. He's going to ask him to pray. And then when it's about time to pray, he tells him not to pray. <laughs> so we got a priest and we got prayer. And the next thing he does is another formal thing. He's, he makes an oath. You know, an oath is a formal thing. You get two people in front of you, your preacher, get two people in front of you. They say, I will. They say, I will. And then they say, I do. They say, I do. And those are formal things. This is a formal oath. What is the oath that's so unwise that he does, that he makes? It's this. He says, you go out and you fight all day long and you don't eat. Honey's all over the ground, but don't you touch it. <laughs> now, this is what one man said in the 1800s. If Saul had been advised by Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte would have said, Saul, armies fight for 20 miles in one day on their bellies. You can fight 20 miles in a day. But you have to eat. You have to have the calories. You got to have food. And he's told them to go out and fight until the end of the day without any food. And so these folks are hungry. And so now here comes another formal thing that he does. He hears at the end of the day the people pounce on the uh, spoil. They go after the food. The oxen and the calves and the sheep. They slay the, the, the animals and then they begin to eat the meat without doing what? Draining the blood. And so Saul finds out, hey, you know what? The people are eating the meat without draining the blood. And you know what Saul does then? <laughs> he chastises them. <laughs> you, you have acted foolishly. What about your own sin? He's pointing out their sin. <laughs> this is so unbelievable. You have transgressed God's law. He's so severe on them but he won't be severe on himself. Then the next thing, number five, he builds an altar. <laughs> he Listen, he builds an altar and stands beside it for other people to use it, but he doesn't use it himself. <laughs> it gets worse. 
After the men recover a little bit, he inquires of the Lord, and he asks whether they should go out after the Philistines farther down the road, and let's go after them. The priest prays, and there's no answer. God gives him no answer. Well, folks, listen, a no answer is, is an answer. And what do you think that maybe he should do when he doesn't get an answer? He probably ought to think that God's not answering me. What have I done? But you know what he does? He does the next worst thing. He goes out and he makes another oath. He thinks, he thinks that he's Joshua. <laughs> he thinks he's going to go out and he's going to find the person who did this. <laughs> Let us find what sin has been committed today. He's going to go find the guilty party. So this guy, he's sounding really spiritual. He's got a priest. He prays. He's got oaths. He's building altars. In fact, I didn't say this earlier when he said to bring, bring the priest up to pray. He said, bring the ark with him. You know, bring it all along. And here's the last one. He's going to call for the priest to cast the Urim and the Thummim. He's going to ask the priest to cast lots and find out who the guilty party is. But now, even before, listen, before they cast lots, already understand that whatever the lots, whatever the, the, the verdict is of the lots, it's already moot. God's already told them that he's not answering Saul. God's already answered Saul. He hasn't given him an answer. Something's wrong with Saul. And so, anyway, the lot falls on Jonathan. Jonathan says, you can take my life. But what should he have said? He should have said, this is my son. He's the one who started the whole victorious battle in the first place. What have I done? But he doesn't say that. He's ready. He's determined in God's name to put his own son to death in such ignorance. This is what William Blakey writes. This could never have entered into anyone's mind except one with a distempered brain. That's what he thinks about Saul. All of this is a formal parade. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with his sin. It has everything to do with him trying to get rid of the consequences. He will sacrifice his own son in order not to lose the kingdom. So we see all these things held side by side. And the result is that Saul keeps going from bad to worse. It's not getting better. He needs another form. He needs another form. He goes from bad to worse. He has a priest, but he doesn't have the Word of God. He has somebody to pray, but he has no peace with God. He has oaths, but these oaths don't bring glory to God. They just bring problems and hardships. He's severe on the uh, sin of others, but not on himself. He builds altars and stands beside them, never grasps the head of the sacrifice for himself. He put, was willing to put to death his own son. In fact, the only time there's sanity in the whole passage is when the men stand against him and say, you can't put your son to death. We have to ask ourselves, and you know, sometimes I get all concerned because I, I know everybody here, but I'm going to still just preach this like you need to hear it yourself. <laughs> Are we here sometimes? We need to be un to understand that we, if we displease God, we're under the wrath and curse of God, and we need to be punished for our sins. We need to be punished. We don't need to get rid of the consequences. We need to be punished for our sins. We don't need to run to, to uh, activities, but we need to come to God and grasp our sins. And so people will determine. Sometimes maybe you have done this. You have determined 
to be more attentive to religious things. You will attach yourself to the preacher. There's been people in the past, I know Mark can tell, tell me this, but there are people who have tried to attach themselves to me or attach themselves to the session or, or say, I will read my Bible more. I will tip God in the offering plate more. I will do more. I mean, I will stop texting. I will stop watching videos while I'm in worship. People do that. You know people do that, don't you? I will prove to God that I really, really mean business. I will eliminate these consequences by appeasing God. But what is happening here is we've forgotten while we're so busy we don't hear anymore. That's what I was getting at this morning when I told you all the story about what happens in the gym. <laughs> you all know the, the story. when What happens in the gym? I, I, I've got to give this to you. If you're in the gym, like I used to work in the gym, all the people are working. The music is loud. I mean, friend, you are talking to people like you're talking right up to them. You've got to talk to them. You know what it's like. The music goes off and it gets all you can hear is click, clank, clank, chink, chank, chonk, all this kind of stuff. People mumble a little bit. And all of a sudden the men are going, turn the music back on. Get the music back on. And all I can think is, man, they just don't want to listen. They don't want to hear themselves think. We just don't want to hear. We don't want to think our own thoughts. When Luther entered into the monastery, the Augustinian monastery, he worshiped six times a day. Now, this changes over time, but at first he worshiped six times a day. The first worship service was at 2 a.m. in the morning, folks. <laughs> and then you had another one, another one, all throughout the day. And so all throughout the day, he was so exhausted with all the busyness and all these activities that he never had time to worry and grasp his sin. But once the formalities stopped, he began to grasp his sin. And God is saying to us, no matter how careful we might be in the forms of religion, no matter how much we might do, we need to sorrow over our sins. We need to grasp our sins. The woman with the issue of blood, if you go read about her in Mark 5, you remember she was ill for 12 years. She suffered under many, many hands. She spent everything that she had, and was she getting better? She went from bad to worse. She tried everything. How is it going for you if you're trying religious formalism? Is it going from bad to worse? The more you pray, the more you give, the more you teach, the more you study your Bible, it's going from bad to worse. Are you right with God is really the question. And most of the time when we do all these things, what happens is we grow bitter and we grow angry. We get upset. We're praying all the way. We're praying really hard. We're doing lots of stuff. But what we really need to do, folks, is touch the hem of Jesus' garment. When the woman, who had done everything she could, spent all the money that she had, when she said, I'll go touch his garment, that's when she was healed. And when we comprehend that our sin is against God, he will give us his forgiveness. This is what explains religious formalism. It's not grasping first our sin. Second, religious formalism can be explained second by not grasping the sacrifice. Saul's formal religion does not know a time when he grasped hold of the sacrifice that was in front of him. 
He never experienced. Have you ever read, you know, you read your Psalms and David says, I have seen the glory of the Lord. Do you think he saw a ghost floating through the building? No, no. He was saying, I see past what the ministers are doing. I see past all the gold and all the beauty and all the things that are in front of me. And I see God by faith. Saul never saw that. He never saw that this this animal being put to death forgave him of his sins. The Lord caused Saul to be the first king of Israel. Six foot six, bone and brawn and biceps, and I'm sure plenty of blood. Head and shoulders above the rest. He may not have been brought up on the catechism by his father, but God brought Samuel into his life, but he just didn't get it. Early on, you see him humble. He's beside the baggage. Early on, he prophesies. Early on, he defeats Nahash, the eye-gouging Ammonite. He's with Samuel on uh, the hill, on the mountain. In 1 Samuel 8, they offer up this reaffirmation of the kingdom. It's a kingdom renewal time. But you never see him take hold of the head of the sacrifice for himself. What you see him do in 1 Samuel 13 is he disobeys the Lord. He will trust in his own sacrifice. He will not trust in the sacrifice God makes for him. Our salvation is not based on our sacrifice or our formalism. Our salvation is based on the sacrifice God makes for our sins. So following his sin, he resorts to all these activities. He knew the Spirit of God only in his work. He knew the Spirit of God only in victories. He knew the, you know, the ability to speak in tongues one time. But he didn't know about the conviction of his sin. He never knew how to grasp hold of the sacrifice with his own hands. And he never experienced the Spirit of God changing his soul. Has somebody taken time to be with you and teach you about Jesus Christ? Has somebody spent their time like Samuel did Saul and talked to you about the things of God? You know all of it. You can explain it to me. You can sit up here and we can, we can you know, Mr. Mr. Larson and I, we've been sitting with people and we've been asking them questions and they've been answering our questions. And, and that's a great thing. We have our confession of faith in front of everybody in the church. Samuel taught Saul all that he knew. He told him how to take hold of the head of the sacrifice. He taught him that his guilt and his sin needed to be transferred to an innocent lamb. But he never got it. He never understood that. It's one thing for us to stand in front of the church. It's one thing for us to to say the things that we, we believe these things. But have we really grasped our sin? And have we really placed our sins on Jesus Christ who is our sacrifice? You know, we, we hear people say this a lot today. Um, they've taken the Ten Commandments off the walls. They've taken the Ten Commandments out of the schools. They've taken Christ out of Christmas, and they've taken the cross and the resurrection out of, out of uh, Easter. Well, i got a question for you. You have the Ten Commandments. You have in your heart a place for the Ten Commandments. You have a place in your heart for the Christ who is all that Christmas is all about. And do you have a place in your heart for the cross and Christ's resurrection in your life? As we look at Saul, we're forced to examine our own hearts to see that what we claim to be ours, is it really ours? The real thing when we grasp hold of our sacrifice 
It never wears out. We're always glad. And that brings us to the third point. What explains formal religion? What explains this religion that's passionate about the things of God but has no real heart for God? Well, third, it does not grasp worship. It doesn't grasp sin. It doesn't grasp the sacrifice, and it won't, does, doesn't worship. Have you ever seen Saul worship God in this, in this Bible that we read? He doesn't worship. But we do have a beautiful picture of worship in 1 Samuel. Do you all remember who worships really well in 1 Samuel, the first chapter? It's Hannah. This is a person who worships God through thick and thin, through trials and troubles and even happiness. We first meet her, and she goes with her husband Elkanah to go and worship. And what is she doing when she, he, she's weeping? She is barren. She is going through a trial. Remember, she has all the love of Elkanah, but Peninnah has all the children, and Peninnah doesn't like that she has the love, and so she rubs, and I like to say it like this, she rubs the salt in the wound. So she goes and she worships. She hears the benediction from Eli. She walks away. She's excited. She's happy. She's, she's heard the word of God. She goes. She washes up. She eats and she's happy. She's worshiping God when she find out, finds out that she's pregnant. She worships God when she brings the little boy and delivers him over to Eli and gives him up. She's worshiping all the time. In fact, Remember we said she worshipped in an extravagant way. She's supposed to give so much flour and so much wine and one bull, she gives three times the amount of flour, three times the amount of wine, and three times the number of bulls. It's extravagant worship. This is a person who knows how to appreciate God. Saul will never know this. You and I, we cannot worship by going through these forms. We cannot know this worship by grasping, uh, by not grasping our sin. But we have to grasp our sin. We have to grasp the head of Jesus, and then we will worship. We have to confess our sins and lay them on Him, and then we will find ourselves worshiping. Well, let me end with three or four illustrations. The woman in Luke chapter seven. You remember she finds Jesus' feet, and what does she do with them? She grasps hold of his feet. Old Simon the Pharisee, he has treated Jesus abominably, but she comes and she grasps hold of his feet, pours perfume on his feet, cries tears on his feet, washes her, her, his feet with her hair. Why does she do it? Because she grasped her sin. Now she's full of worship. She's full of worship because she, her sins are forgiven. Worship is the element. Worship, is, worship of Jesus Christ is the key to all of our life. In John chapter 12, Jesus at the home of Lazarus, and Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And so we have this great honor, this great banquet. And so, you know, you've got, I like to say it like this, um, you've got Lazarus doing man, men things, man things. What's he doing? He's reclining at the table. That's what men do at these things. Then you got Martha, what's she doing? Well, she's doing Martha things. She's serving, she's busy. And then you got Mary, she's doing Mary things. You know what Mary's doing? She's at Jesus' feet. And we're told that she's doing something extravagant. 11 ounces that are valued at $27,000. And she breaks it open and pours it out. And the room fills with beautiful smell. She's worshiping. This person raised her brother from the dead and maybe she's full of gratitude for the sacrifice that he's about to make the next day at christmas 
I don't know why, but for about 10 or 12 years now, I've been thinking about Nicodemus. Let me explain. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark. And then in John 19, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark again when he's on the cross and already dead. Well, Mary cradled Jesus when he was born. And she had his head. I'm sure, you know how you hold babies? You always, a man surely like me, when I hold a baby for the first time in many weeks, I put my, I put their head in my hand. I got it. I control that head. So she's controlling it. She's taking care of Jesus. She's cradling him. And now we have an old man with Joseph of Arimathea who goes and takes Jesus off the cross. And now this old man is cradling Jesus in his hands. His head is in his hands. This man who knows all about formal religion, this man who was in the darkness when he came to Jesus is now walking in the light. Why is he there? He's cradling his Savior, his sacrifice in his hands. He understands what it means to confess his sins. He understands his need for a sacrifice. Folks, do you know this? Do you know this kind of worship? Do you know this kind of posture in your worship? You can never know it if you think God owes you something for all your troubles. You can only know this worship when you see all the troubles He has gone through for you. Grasp your sin. Grasp the head of your sacrifice and worship this way the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for what we can learn from wonderful passages in the Old Testament. Thank you for teaching us to look away from formal things, as wonderful as they are. We love our formal worship. We love Bible reading as a, as a form. We love all these things, but all of these things are that we might grasp hold of the God who gives them to us and not trust in them. Father, we pray that you will teach us to more deeply turn from our sins. We pray that you will teach us at Christmas time to cradle Jesus in our hearts, in his, his head in our hearts, this head that was bruised and harmed and hurt for us, that we might be saved. And Father, we pray that we might worship. We may not break open a vial of pure nard worth 27,000 or give three bulls, but Lord, we pray that you will teach us to call Jesus precious in our hearts. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask it all in his name. Amen.